Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Megan Boxall. Hey there, Megan. Very well, thanks, John. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. And uh, Emma Powell, how are you, Emma? Yeah, good, thanks. So this week, Megan, we're going to talk about your cover feature, which you've written this week, Close to the Edge, which is about drugs companies and their pipelines and uh, the threat of the patent cliff. Lots of results starting to come through and lots of interesting tip updates, which in fact relate to the cover feature, particularly about AstraZeneca, which we'll talk about. Let's start, though, with the news. So, Emma, big story this week is the AA. Yeah, AA, bad week for the AA, bad year for the AA, in fact. Uh, I think they're down now after this profit warning, about 65%. During wow. the past 12 months. Kind of a good week for us, though, because we, we suggested certainly these just last week. We did. I mean, the timing, yeah, timing, very good timing. Um, or very bad, in, in the sense well, that if you hold the shares, it's not great, but if you'd listened to us, then you would have sold them. Yeah. What's happened? Well, I mean, it's troubles, I would argue. I think, as you wrote in your editorial, do lie in its private equity-backed past. You know, even Bob McKenzie, who was former uh, chairman... He said uh, a couple of years ago that, you know, it basically just not had the investment that it it should have had, which, again, is kind of, you know, not a surprise to anyone that you know is familiar with a lot of companies that have been brought to market by private equity. Yeah, although the point I make in my editorial is that that is not universally true of private equity. No, 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 it's not. IPOs. No, and interestingly, I mean, Saga was actually um, had the same private equity backer was brought to market the same year as the AA. It's had some troubles recently, but um, if you look at its debt profile and the progress it's made, it's been a lot better. So AA's got, I mean, it's to do with its end markets as well. So this week they've come out and said they're cutting the dividend. So that's from, it was 9.3 pence in 2017. It's going to be 5p for the year just gone. It, its year end is January 2017. 18 and it's going to be just 2p in 2019 which is very bad plus there's no uh, there's no guidance on when that will go back to normal it's just when profits and cash flow recover yeah because i mean you know looking at some of the headline numbers the profits and cash flow don't seem too bad no it's very um highly cash generative business is it just that they have so much debt to, to serve i mean they've got about 2.7 billion pounds worth of debt they have reduced the cost of debt since c- coming to market uh four years ago but you know it's 2.7 billion pounds uh, they say they've got the headroom i mean the real issue with the aa is i think it's business model that it's so reliant on its roadside business and this this whole paid personal membership model that's just been in decline basically for years now it's, it's a strange one i mean I, I i used to be a customer of the of the, of the aa and then uh, you know i broke down one day and when i when i rang them up they told me i wasn't a member and I had I had been a member for years, and, and and as far as I remember, I'd auto renewed for years, and then one day it just stopped. And you know, it suggested to me at the time that something had gone wrong in terms of the back end, the systems that were supporting yeah. the business, and that seems to be they've admitted that in terms of the, the strategic plan they've put in place. Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the problem isn't actually getting new members. They do, I think, it's about twenty three percent new membership increased by um, since the IPO. So it's not getting the new members; it's just holding on to them. Their customer retention is weak. And uh, part of this kind of strategic update that Simon Breakwell, the new CEO, has come out with is investing a lot more money into their customer relationship management systems, it, as it they call be, them. It couldn't be worse from my experience. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, you could, there's nothing worse than being left at, at the roadside with a broken down car and, and no one's come pick you up. Yeah. As it happens, I had, I remembered, I had green flag insurance through my packaged bank account. Is this something that's, that's hit them? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. Firstly, the marketplace is becoming more competitive. And secondly, they're really struggling to get any customers under 50, apparently, which is surprising to me. But that part of the market is very much what they're now trying to uh, target, especially with, you know, investing in their app, their, their telematics product. They're, they're really hoping that rather than people having to phone up a call centre, that if people can go on their app and report a problem or anything that that will that will kind of attract a broader range of people i don't know what maybe why i'm not as confident in this kind of strategic update is because none of it's exactly rocket science none of it's that startling stuff i mean one is increasing customer retention it was explained to me things like just ahead of someone's renewal date making sure you get in touch with them sending them a letter would that, be helpful. that that sounds to me i mean that's very basic stuff clearly good important but i find it quite surprising that none of this has been done before although having said that the three main targets were uh, cutting their debt investing in technology and trying to increase their paid personal membership again they haven't really delivered on any of these. I mean, their net debt actually, I think, is down about three hundred million. But they did do a capital raising. But they, so. and they sold a business as well. They sold yeah, their they, Irish business. business. So I, I don't know if I'd really uh, count that. Um, so they, you know, it, I wouldn't say they've delivered on anything really, and it has been kind of almost four years now. And, and of course, you had this boardroom uh, fallout, which which happened last year, which. Which was a bit weird, and I don't really want to go into it. No, yeah. Um, but, but the, you know, the, the signs were there that something was not right. Exactly. Um, and, and you just look at the, the dividend yield as well. I think it was almost 8% or something. I think it was, yeah. And yeah. the PE had dropped, I think, to 5 yeah, when you yeah, wrote yeah. it last week. And I, yeah. In combination, that's pretty much a sort of exactly. bang on Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're not then confident that this recovery plan is going to, to pay off then? No, I don't think so, because um, the problems with its end market... You know, even if you think, okay, maybe they'll make progress in cutting their debt, the shares have fallen so much. I'm just not confident in this in this strategy is going to reverse the decline in membership. See, I, I, I get the sense there could be another capital raise on the way if, uh, if that, that continues to be an maybe, issue. Maybe, yeah. Um, the app. Uh, it, Apps, everyone's got them. But the telematics product sounds interesting. This is the way the motor market's going. And I, I, I thought this did sound interesting if they can get it right. We're called Car Genie. I think it's only used by about 5,000 members at the moment. But it's basically about trying to predict when your car's going to break down. That would um, be quite useful. Yeah, no, no, that, that would be useful. Um, I'm just, I don't know, I'm not sure that could save it. Yeah, no, it does, it does sound quite quite useful. And, you know, I mean, cars these days are so electronic that, mm. uh, you know, you could plug something in and it could tell you exactly what the engine is doing at any point in time. And, and you, there's no reason that that can't be shared through a database. So, yeah, I could see it working, but not I just think the it's extent that's going to save yeah, this business in, in the too quick many problems, yeah. that needs to be solved very yeah. quickly. Uh, so we've got them on a sale still. Correct. Okay. Fidesa, that's an interesting, uh, both in the results section and the, the news section. Yeah, they had very good results this week, I think. Um, but yeah, they've they've received an offer from a Swiss rival. Um, it's quite a generous offer as well. I think it's about £1.4 billion it values it at, which and I think its market cap prior to the offer was about £1.1 billion. So we're awaiting documents on that. But I think Harriet Klarfeld, who obviously covers the sector, was very uh, positive on that. Mm, absolutely. Let's move quickly to the tip updates page. Let's talk about, I mean, you, you've written half most of this page, Megan, mm. actually. But the one that obviously I think most of our, our listeners will be interested in is AstraZeneca. Yeah. Let's talk, what's happened there this week? They had a some good news from one of their drugs, and um, the drug that they have flagged as the big one, the one that's going to save them. And it's called Infinity, it's a cancer drug. 
it has already had an approval in the US, but it's that had the label extended. So before it was only for cancer patients in stage four. Obviously, well, unfortunately, there are fewer cancer patients in stage four because a lot of them don't reach that stage. Mm-hmm. And it's now been approved for stage three as well. Um, it's a bigger patient population. And it is the only immuno-oncology drug, which means it uses the patient's immune system um, rather than traditional chemotherapy methods to fight the cancer, um, which has been approved for stage three lung cancer in America. So that means it's going to have a period of exclusivity where there aren't any other competitors on the market. Optimism is very high that it's going to be a blockbuster and solve all their problems. Which... Yeah, indeed. I mean, and, and this is the crux of the cover feature. Drugs companies like AstraZeneca have drugs that have supported their revenues for many, many, many years. Uh, but those drugs eventually reach the end of their patent protection. Mm-hmm. And the end... This is what you've looked at in this week's coverage, and you've done a huge amount of work in terms of going through the companies one by one and actually pulling this data together. I mean, it's, it's our data. Yeah. Fantastic. Exciting. So, so, so tell us, I mean, AstraZeneca is a good example of this uh, and how, you know, replenishing in terms of replenishing its portfolio. Mm. But talk us through the, the, the big idea behind this feature. So the pharmaceutical industry is changing quite a lot. It's changed an awful lot in the last couple of years in that the big pharma companies used to rely very heavily on, like you say, one big selling drug which had a really long period of exclusivity where no other drugs would be allowed to compete. And they used to target, pharma companies used to target really big patient populations like respiratory diseases such as asthma or cardiovascular diseases such so as... GSK is big in, in asthma, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and AstraZeneca used to be as well. It still is. They, that was sort of the core of the British pharma business, so those two really big patient population illnesses. But the problem with that is that those medicines are kind of already there now and they're also pretty much as good as it gets. GSK's got one which... Um, it's it's the little blue inhaler. Anyone who has asthma mm-hmm. will know that that's, that's the key product. And you can't really get much better than that for what it does. Um, but that drug has lost its pattern protection, which means that now generic copies are starting to come into the marketplace. For for that one, it's, there's been generic versions for a while. But GSK's big problem is that its other asthma drug is called Advair. That is facing generic competition for the first time this year. And even just the US sales of Advair makes up about 5% of GSK's overall revenue, which is just a huge amount of reliance on one drug in one country. And there's lots of other companies which have similar reliance on on one or two drugs, which are nearing the end of their of their patent life. So that's what I've done in this feature. I've gone through all the drugs which are coming off patent either last year or in, in 2018. And working out how much of company revenues are actually going to be damaged by the loss of patent protection. And for some of them, it's it's massive. There's a company called Accorder. It's only a small company, but it makes 100% of its revenues from one drug. And that drug lost patent protection in 2017. And it hasn't faced generic competition yet, but there are generics which are waiting approval from the FDA, which means that their revenue is going to be it's expected to be completely hammered this year. And that's very, very bad news. So, so, so I guess the first question would be, so once some once a drug loses, loses its patent or uh, once a company loses a patent on a drug, how quickly can they realistically expect to lose that revenue as generics come by? Or is this process much slower and, they're, and therefore they're a bit more insulated than, than the raw data would suggest? Well, some of them, it completely, it's really, really dependent on what the type of drug is, what the patient population is like, what if there are any other companies operating in that market. 
so with some drugs, it can literally be the next day. So a drug comes off patent, a generic company can launch their new one, it can be ready to go, the FDA can already have approved it, and off you go. And that is often the case with some of the big cancer drugs, HIV medicines, big patient populations, but also they can be really expensive drugs. So it's worth the while of the FDA getting these drugs approved, these generic copies approved quickly. But then with some, for such as for rare, rare diseases it's not really worth the while of generic drugs makers making copycat versions because the patient population just isn't big enough. It's not worth investing the money in copying uh, copying a drug like that. So for a company like Shire, which has a lot of rare disease drugs, when they lose patent protection, it's actually not so much of a problem because they can just go uncontested for years. I guess, I mean, an interesting example on the UK market is Indivior, which used to be part of Rick yeah. Benkis. I mean, Suboxone, which is their opioid addiction treatment, yeah. that, that lost patent protection a while back in in its kind of original form yeah but they've been quite clever about how they so how this is the it. thing that has sort of happened a lot recently it, rather than and it's been people have been very critical of the pharmaceutical industry for doing this rather than actually making sure you're bulking up your pipeline with a lot of new drugs to fill the gap when drugs come off patent pharmaceutical companies have been creating this really complex suite of patents around their products so a drug can lose patent protection or well, one of its patents 10 years before the final patent. So there's a company, um, there's a drug, a uh, cancer drug, which is owned by Celgene, which has, I think it's 26 patents, which expire over the course of a decade. And fighting that kind of thing is absolutely crazy. And that's exactly what's happened with Indivia. It lost its first patent on Suboxone a couple of years ago, but it's still got so many other patents which are still going. And, and, it's, and it's looking at new delivery mechanisms. So I think they moved to a film, which, yeah, exactly. which gives them a new pattern yeah. and a new, and essentially new protection. Yeah. So Indivia has been a really rocky company because generic drug makers are saying this isn't fair. We need to be able to have a gap. That's the whole point of having a deadline on on drugs patents is that you have to be able to have generics coming in. Otherwise, the market just gets it's too expensive. You need to have competition. Um, but but I, Indivia, I guess, I guess though, sorry to interrupt. There's a, right? there's a balance to be struck, however, which is that if you don't, make it economically worthwhile for, for large drug developers to, yeah. to, to actually earn the, the incredible costs that go into this, yeah. then then you won't have any new drugs. No, and it is. It's a really difficult argument, and it's one that I just find so difficult to debate because you listen to people like Martin Shkreli, who was the pictured as the bad boy of pharma. He owned a company which bought a drug and uh, inflated the price by a huge amount. It was an old drug. But his argument was that they needed that money to invest in, in new drugs. And even though it was it seemed awful at the time, you can sort of see the argument behind needing the money to invest in, in like you say, in new drugs. But then also, where's the line? You you can't be charging as much as some companies are. It's, there was a, um, a cure for blindness, which was approved. It's been the most expensive drug ever. And it's something like £500,000 per eye. Yeah, that's a lot and of money. It's just so much money, and 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 that's something that can change someone's life. There's a medicine out there which could cure blindness, but how many people can afford that? Sounds like we're getting into, into the realm a, of politics. With yeah, that it's, a, it's, it's a it's a really it's a horrible, really horrible argument. But I think there is definitely an argument for for the sake of their business for pharmaceutical companies investing heavily in drug development because relying on on patents just isn't good enough. And it it's been shown we, we've seen the amount of drugs which are coming close to their patent expiry, the fact that the FDA is starting to approve more generics and also saying that 
no, this is not okay. You can't have this massive suite of patents surrounding one product. They need to be investing in the in drug discovery as well. Indeed, and you've actually got a chart in here, uh, which you pulled together, R&D, which you've presumably had to go through individual reports to, to pull together. Yeah. Um, looking at those companies which are spending heavily on R&D, yeah. I guess, I guess that, that's one indicator of a company which we... Of, of how you assess a company's preparedness for, for, for its pipeline uh, and, and its drugs coming to, to the end of their, their, their patient-protected life. Yeah. What other things should we be looking for in these, these big drugs companies that might suggest that they are well-positioned to, to get through this challenge? Um, well, being in slightly novel areas is, is really good. Um, that's why we, we still really like Shire. It's had, a, it's had a really difficult time, but we do like Shire for the fact it is in rare diseases and there aren't very many companies which are competing in that market. Um, we also like the immuno-oncology space and that it is becoming more competitive. There's Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb and AstraZeneca who've all got drugs approved in that area now. But there are so many different types of cancer and they all need, they all need treatment. So the market's big enough. Yeah, looking at the companies that are investing in, in R&D and the companies that have a pipeline of drugs, not just that are in the final phases of development, but also in phases one and two, because there are so many drugs that we don't get through the early stages of development. You need to have enough in there. Um, and then the other thing is investing in, in M&A. And lots of companies, um, they almost call it outsourcing your early stage development because it's really expensive and it's so time consuming to invest in the early stage of drug discovery and development. But there are smaller loads thousands of smaller pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies which can do it so much better and then if they are bought just as the drug is starting to get to the level where they're going to commercialize it then that's a good time to buy them out incorporate the drug into into your own drugs pipeline so keeping some cash back for M&A is is something that's sensible which is another reason why we are quite bearish on GSK because they don't have enough cash for anything so are going to struggle to to buy any companies if uh, if they do if they do need to stock up their drugs pipeline. Indeed, you haven't really got into it in this feature, but there are lots of smaller drug developers in the UK. In fact, in fact, around the world that we we do keep an eye on. Yeah. That, that might be uh, yeah. acquisition targets. Absolutely, and it's diff- they are really difficult to track because and they're difficult to invest in because you've just got to sort of put your money in there and then leave it and wait for the clinical trials to announce their results. One of and keep our, your fingers crossed. And keep, yeah, and it's <laughs> so is. risky. There's No one knows. There's no way of saying... Well, it's binary outcomes. Yeah, it's yeah, it is literally either that drug has failed or that drug has succeeded. And if it's succeeded, then the share price is going to rocket. And if it's failed, then a lot of the time there's nothing left. You, you would think... The, this trend, uh, you know, the, the, the pressure on drugs pricing and, you know, the, the concerns about overpriced drugs, that, that, that generics might be the place to be. But you've looked at this in the feature as well, and, and, and it's not as clear-cut as that. No, it is. It, yeah, like you say, it, it was that seems to be logical, but it's not at all, because the FDA are rushing through drug approvals, generic drug, drug approvals, so quickly. They're doing that for everyone, um, and which means that there are loads of generic drugs in there. So what used to happen in the generic space is they, they used to allow the first generic drug six months of... It's not exclusivity because there's already the, the the branded drug on the market. So they kind of had, had a duopoly in the space, but they've got rid of that because they decided that we need to lower price, drugs pricing. Mm. There's also been a really massive increase of generic drugs, generic drugs companies in India and they're increasing the competition. And just more pressure on pricing. Your Generic drugs makers are being pressured more than anyone else to lower the cost of their drugs because they're meant to be the cheap ones. 
But they, they don't have the huge R&D ex- overhead. That, no, that, but, uh, it's but, much, yeah. But they do have to get their production right then yeah. because the drug's cost is that so much lower than, than it yeah. would have been when it was on patent. Yeah, so you need to be targeting the right markets. And it's, that's the other thing that's changed a lot in the pharma industry. There's now less focus on the chemical process, the pharmaceutical process. It's more about biotechnology, the biological, living organisms. And they're much harder to replicate because they're changing all the time because they're living. But this is where we're getting the, to the realm of biosimilars. So there is a generic equivalence in the yeah. biotech, which is biosimilars. Yeah. And they are very complex um, and very, very difficult to... And no one really seems to have cracked the biosimilar market. And the, also the problem with it is that branded big pharma companies like Amgen and Sanofi have their own biosimilar divisions because they're good at it. So why wouldn't they? That seems quite sensible. Yeah, it's really sensible. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's the way the pharma industry is going. Maybe we're going to get to the stage eventually where we we just have these big companies which are producing both their own branded product and then when the patent comes to an end, their own generic version. That would seem quite sensible, Mm. but not a lot of them do it. Because they can do it better than anyone else. Well, yeah, why would they? Because... Yeah, but you can target someone else's market. So, you know, make make your money out of your big blockbuster while you have the patent. And in the meantime, keep, you know, to have the generics that keeps the cash flow. Sounds quite sensible. It might crack the industry. (laughs) Um, And just just going back to generics, there is one company in the UK that we look at here, which is Hikma. Mm Mm-hmm. Not been an easy ride for them, necessarily. No, Hikma's had a, had a really bad, uh, really, really bad couple of years. Um, but interestingly, some news out from Hikma this week. They've changed their um, chief executive. So I think he was the founder. He's, well, he's been there for a very long time. But he's been moved into the executive chairman role. And they brought a new chief executive in. He's come from Teva. And that's, that news sent the share price up about 10% in one day. I don't know whether that's because they think the, chief exe- the old chief executive was bad or the new one's going to be really good, but... They think that there might be a little bit of change going on at Hikma, which Tiva being Tiva is an Israeli, Israeli, yeah, that's right, generics company, Um, very successful. Yeah, but again, really, really struggling. All of the generics companies, so Tiva, Mylan, and Hikma, they've just had a really terrible year because it's so competitive in the generic generic drug space. There you go. No easy answers, as usual, in biotech. But I think this feature is, is great. I mean, the data it's, uh, you know, in itself is just ex- extraordinary to, to pull all this together. We constantly update on this this theme, on this industry, through the uh, Finding the Cure series, mm. which gives you a lot of the smaller smaller company ideas yeah. there as well. So, yeah, because uh, there's so many of those in the UK which are doing stuff in so many different marketplaces. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Mind, mind-boggling, but mm. fascinating. Thank you, Megan. Emma, I just wanted to quickly talk to you about your sector focus. We don't really talk about this much on uh, on these podcasts, but, no, but you're here and uh, we don't do our videos anymore. Let's talk about the uh, the sector focus. This is really a in- really interesting space and one that Simon Thompson actually likes, wealth management. Oh, really? Obviously, all the kind of structural trends that you hear about, it all makes sense why they are making so much money. So we're talking about pension freedoms. And... Well, pension freedoms and I guess as an ageing population, mm-hmm. you know, inheritance tax issues. It makes sense. Worse that... company, worse corporate pension schemes than you perhaps had in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it makes sense why they're getting, compared to asset managers, why they're getting so much more new business. And And they are, like, you know, even after the referendum when you might think, oh, people are might be a bit spooked the asset management industry that had retail investors that had a big downturn but wealth managers they've been shifting towards obviously discretionary asset uh, discretionary wealth management which is more profitable because there's less yeah because you interaction just, you know hand over your money and then rather than them having to ask you can i do this or that they just take the decision for you because you've you know in the name 
you've handed that over, it's a fee fee based model rather than commission, which is quite good because obviously a lot of them have suffered at the moment with a lack of transaction income just because you know volatility is low despite the kind of blip we had uh, a couple of weeks ago. But at the same time, we've kind of seen valuations come off a bit at the moment. It is a very expensive sector, and it kind of does um, it does warrant that, you know, in relation to asset managers because they have such a higher rate of organic growth. Um, the question is obviously, and, and, and they're also much closer to their customer. In terms well, well, exactly, yeah. They know about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's powerful stuff. Well, this days. is the it's, big. Uh... I mean, when you talk to them, this is their big uh, argument against. Or why they don't think, you know, robo-advice will be a threat. I mean, I still think it is, kind of, to be honest. But they would say they target, uh, you know, a different... It's a different clientele. It's, it's you know, it's pe- people with... It's kind of wealthier clients that they target. And also they'd say, yeah, you, you have a much closer relationship. Because, you know, you could just ring up your wealth manager and have a chat. Well, obviously, you can do that if it's a robo-advisor. Although, actually, having said that, Brewin Dolphin kind of stands out as one that is launching kind of a lower-cost product. It's an interesting space. And you've got some interesting companies here, Brooks McDonald, Charles Stanley. Brooks McDonald, I think, is one Simon particularly likes. Yeah, although it's uh, had a bit of trouble recently, just on its margin side. The, these things happen. Yeah. Uh, Rathbone Brothers is an interesting one. Because they do run a lot of funds. They are an asset manager, but but it seems that they're much broader in scope than that. Yeah, I mean, they've got a banking you, I mean, you, you, You've well. just spoken to them. Well, I have, I have. Another good year. They've had their results out today, Thursday. Um, yeah, again, it's about a billion pounds worth of new business, um, which is very good. They're very, they're quite different, actually, to a lot of the wealth managers because they have less of a, a kind of a less of a developed relationship with intermediaries, which is traditionally the way that uh, wealth managers grow their business. So they've had a lot of kind of direct referrals. Direct customer. Yeah. Well, they see that as, a, you know, they're, they're really kind of chasing intermediaries. I can see, you know, obviously it is good to, to, you know, have a broader intermediary network, but I actually think it's a bit of a strength to have direct customers. It's higher margin. And also if you do consider that there may be, some, you know, outside regulatory pressure on, you know, the fees that maybe IFAs are charging, even when they outsource to a discretionary fund manager, I think it's quite good to have a to have a strong kind of direct channel. Equally, there, there may be lots of people who are not in, as comfortable as dealing with this stuff directly and, and seek yeah. the advice of a, of a third party. Well, yeah, IFA, that, that so, is the thing. So cover all bases. Exactly. Who's our favourite in the sector? Probably just on a valuation basis at the moment, Bruin Dolphin. They had a lot of trouble, you know, they had to restructure and they were a bit slower to uh, kind of shift more towards the, away from the execution only and more towards the discretionary management part. But they're growing kind of organically about 5%. Rathbones hasn't managed that. They've got the same 5% target. They're only doing about three. And yet there are, there are about 16 times forward earnings, I believe, which is the cheapest in the sector. Yeah, no, no, looks interesting. Interesting sector, De- definitely, definitely uh, a sector which is in the right place at the right time, given yeah. the, the trends we're seeing in uh, personal wealth management. So uh, interesting stuff. So I know you're both itching to get back to your desks. I've seen next week's results flat plan. It's quite large. It's very big. <laughs> I mean, let's quickly talk about before we do a couple of results this week. Anything that struck you, Megan, that you uh, you covered? Well, I didn't actually write it because I was away at a wedding but relics had results which was very exciting because they are an incredibly poorly performing tip of the year so far but it's unjustified which was shown in the results just solid growth again they've decided to 
closed down their listing on the Dutch Stock Exchange. They're bringing it all into London, simplifying the business. It's all going very well, but the shares are now very good value. This this is the old Reed El Savio. Yeah, yeah. What is it about this business that you particularly like? I just like everything about it. I think it's just... Oh, well, go and narrow it down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a very well-diversified business model. So a lot of these media... And publishing companies have, they've gone into the events business or they've tried to take everything online. Relics has done both. So they've got a very successful, they call it the exhibitions division. It owns Comic-Con. Comic-Con? Yeah. Oh, I like them. And the biggest section is the science division and it's all digital. So they own the Lancet, which is obviously a very highly rated uh, journal. They're LexisNexis as well, are they? Yeah, they're LexisNexis. And they've also got a massive, um, and this is a bit I like the most, data analysis business. And that they store so much data on insurance and and all sorts. And with GDPR coming in in the UK, they've got a really big opportunity in the UK. At the moment, it's massive in the US, their data and analytics business. I mean, if I remember rightly, when you when you wrote this tip, you know, you, you kind of, you were looking at them more like they're, te- they're becoming a tech yeah, company more than a publishing company in, in yeah. many respects. Because they've got so much data, which is all stored online and people use their databases and data is so valuable now and they've just got one of the biggest in the world um, in their, well, they are the biggest in the world in all of their different sectors. Um, and they're valued as a as a publisher and, and they are more and more a tech company. We're, so we're holding the faith. Yeah. Holding the faith. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you talk about data. I think data is one of the things that the AA has got very wrong. They should be cleaning up on the data front. That is part oh, yeah. of what they're what they're trying to do. Actually, they're also trying to get more kind of insurance business. I was surprised actually. Obviously, they don't offer insurance to non-members, and the reason I know I found that surprising too. The reason is, I think, because of a lack of data. So the reason why they're trying to uh, roll out uh, the car genie more, and also they're thinking of launching um, a connected car product in the future, which would have kind of insurance and telematics integrated into it is so they can get better customer data and then they can start offering it to non-members. Yeah, no, no it makes perfect sense. Just, just amazing. They just don't so, have the data quality. So yet. far behind the curve yeah. on the data front when the whole world is, you know, they, I think someone, someone recently has said, you know, the world's most valuable commodity now is data. Emma, let's talk quickly about your big result of the week in the magazine, which is Lloyd's, but the banks are all starting to report. What's going on with the banks? Actually, it seems, I mean, they've got a lot of legacy issues still, but it seems like a lot of the big banks are turning corner, I would say. Lloyd's, very good. Beat expectations on capital generation. £1 billion share buyback. Some people, I think, had some issues with that, given that it was formerly state-owned. But, yeah, very good on capital generation. Net interest margin up. All good on income. HSBC shares fell about 5% on the day. It missed its uh, return on equity targets, though. That's why. Although, actually, I argue in the in the piece, it's a it's a buy tip of ours, HSBC. I argue that actually, if you look, if you look at um, a lot of people were judging it based on that kind of share price decline on the day and the fact that it's slightly missed return on equity targets. But if you look at it over the past, well, since since 2014, when they kind of announced their turnaround strategy, you know, it's up about 70% the shares. And I think that reflects its income potential, frankly. So we've got both those on a buy. Uh, both on a buy. And another one that's on a buy, although this is controversial, is Barclays, obviously the reporter today. Not so great. Not great. Barclays generally, when it's in the news, is because of litigation issues. Obviously, we've had the SFO investigation lately to Barclays Bank being added. But the major thing today was their 
basically guiding towards a 6.5p dividend for 2018. So they're restoring their dividend because their capital levels have reached the 13% level. So, you know, it's it's on about 0.7 times forward tangible assets. So that's the cheapest, that's the lowest of all the major lenders, partly justified, of course, because, you know, it, it does have a lot of these legacy issues. But I would just argue that that, given the restructures over, given the capital's improved... I would argue that's not quite justified, the level of that discount. Okay, so the big banks look uh, are looking good. We haven't got them in this week's issue, but among the challenger banks, Metro reported this week, they were good, they made a profit. They made a profit, um, although interestingly, um, I mean, the shares actually were down about 7% on the day. I would guess the reason for that was because they've... So their store target was 110 by 2020. That's reduced now to 100 Remember, Metro Bank is the bank that is kind of the opposite to a lot of the other lenders. It's opening a lot of very expensive stores on, you know, really good high street locations. They've got their flagship. It's like in the West End on a corner. And I guess they're, you know, they're, they're, they're growing loans a lot, which is all great. And customer deposits are growing. My kind of issue is whether that can sustain it, whether their deposit growth can sustain their loan growth. Craig Donaldson, who's the CEO, reckons so. Although, uh, if you look at their return on equity, I mean, it's way off what their 2020 target is still. And to be honest, given that they're a kind of vanilla retail bank, I don't see how they're going to achieve it. I, I think they're going to miss it. We're basically. going to want to sell still, haven't we? Yeah, they're a sell tip. Okay, so. interesting. Well, I trod in a dog bowl when I went in there the other week. So uh, well, they put them right by the front door. They love dogs, don't they? Yeah, like they that. do. You get That's free dog biscuits as well, yeah. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're very popular. Oh, no, and, and, uh, I would say as a customer, great. As a shareholder, no. Yeah, no, well, that's absolutely fair enough, which, you know, it would be the opposite of my, my general scuttlebutt theory. Scuttlebutt theory, which would have bought me away from the AA shares, to be mm. honest, after my appalling experience. But there you go. So anyway, uh, lots more in the magazine this week. As I say, it's starting to get busy now. And yeah, God, this week looks hell. Um, but we'll get back to it. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Megan. I say lots in the magazine, lots in the personal finance fun section, uh, which they will talk about in their podcast tomorrow. They're now just gearing up for next week's issue, which is the ISA special. It's that time of year when we uh, we need to start thinking about our ISA allowance. Uh, lots in the uh, the comments section. Chris Dillo, in particular, very interesting this week, looking at why mergers fail, which is something that we all have to be acutely aware of when looking at uh, at the stock market. Thank you for listening. Pick up the magazine, all good news agents, close to the edge. The Drugs Company's best place to deal with the patent clear. £4.90, all good news agents, or get online and subscribe. And uh, we'll be back next week. Speak soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.